Have you ever needed to do something but didn't know how to do it? You ever need to know how uh, need to do something but didn't know how to do it? I am uh, what I have labeled handyman challenged. Okay, I I, I would I want to fix things myself, but uh, I always spend about probably three times as much money as I could have if I would have just hired somebody to do it, and certainly a lot more time. Uh, that's kind of the situation that I find myself in frequently at the house. Uh, there's just times when I know I need to fix something, but I, I feel helpless in doing it. I need someone to show me the way. I need somebody to help me. Or perhaps there's something that you need to move, and you can't do it on your own. And so you need help to come alongside and help you with that. And sometimes the Christian life can feel that way, can't it? Sometimes as we look at the Bible and we look at Christ's commands and and the, the urgings that we have to live godly lives, we may find ourselves struggling. And uh, the good news of the gospel is not only that God provides grace to save us, but he supplies by his grace all we need in order to fulfill his plan for us. And so this morning I've entitled the message, Jesus Empowers Life's Purpose, Living a Redeemed Life. And we're going to be covering verses 11 through 15 today, but I want us to back up because a few weeks ago when we, we first went through Titus uh, 1 through 10, I told you this was going to be kind of a two-part thing because it's pastors need to teach their people uh, to live lives that accord or, or adorn good doctrine. As, as uh, ornaments adorn a tree, your life should adorn the teachings of Christ well. And so we're going to start by just reading uh, verses 1 through 15, and then we'll make some specific applications from verses 11 through 15. But the challenge comes here at the beginning to the different groups within the church, and they can be quite the challenge. And, uh, but don't lose hope. God supplies grace. Okay, so verse one, Titus two, verse one. But as for you, speaking to Titus as the pastor, one of the pastors of the church, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And then for our text today, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. God's people are to be taught to live their lives for the Lord. So pastors must teach their people to live godly lives because that's Christ's purpose for them. So Christian, today I want you to understand that Christ supplies all you need to live a godly life full of good works Because that is his purpose for his redeemed people. First of all, note that Christ supplies grace for our present purpose in verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace is unmerited favor. It's an unearned thing. It's a gift. Grace is getting something you don't deserve, just like A lot of the Christmases, the Christmas gifts that your parents gave you when you were growing up, you probably didn't deserve them. Christmas is going to be here and we are going to be celebrating the birth of our Savior. And if if there were better timing in my planning of my sermons, this probably should have been the Christmas message because the grace of God has appeared. This is referring to the first advent of Christ, the birth of Jesus. In a lowly manger, he is coming and he has two purposes for the coming of Jesus in verses 11 and 12. First, we see the grace of God appearing, bringing salvation for all people. Now, what does Paul mean when he says all people? Because not everybody is saved. And later in this passage, he's going to be talking about us, a subgroup of all when he's referring to Christians. What does Paul mean when he says all people? Well, the context of the letter shows us that Paul means people from all nations of the earth. He is writing to the Christian church at Crete, the island of Crete. And so he's certainly writing to Cretans. But on that island, we also have Judaizers and a a group of Jews who are teaching. And some, some of them are teaching Jewish myths falsities and things like that. And so we have Jews that are on the island. Titus himself is from Greece. So we have all these different nations that are represented on the Isle of Crete. So Paul here is writing in saying that Jesus Christ is providing salvation for all people groups. It's referring to God's purpose in uniting all peoples in Christ as a fulfillment of his promise to bless all nations through Abraham's seed. See, it's a fulfillment of that. Just prior to, in Genesis chapter 11, just prior to Abraham coming upon the scene, God has dispersed the nations. We had the, the incident at Babel when God confused the languages, and we have 70 nations that are represented in Genesis 11 that are scattered throughout the earth. And then God says, I'm going to begin a new nation in Abraham. 
But these nations that I've dispersed and been done with, I'm eventually going to come back to and bless them through Abraham's seed. We see the first time that God mentions this in Genesis 12, right after those nations have been listed in Genesis 11. Genesis 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house and the land that I will or to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, why do all people need the grace of salvation? Well, it's because we're all sinful and we need a savior. And so God sent Jesus not just to be a Jewish savior, but to be the savior of the world. And we find that coming to fruition in Galatians three, verses eight and nine says in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all nations. And then there's a second reason that the grace of God has appeared. And that reason is for our sanctification. As we read through Titus 2, 1 through 10, you may have been thinking to yourself as, as, as Paul uh, was listing all these different things that we should be doing as Christians so that we can adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, we may think, man, there's just no way I can do it. I can't, I, I know me, Pastor. I struggle. Well, you're in good company because we all struggle. You may be thinking that there's no way that you can live a godly life, but God not only supplies grace for our salvation, but he also supplies grace for our sanctification. For the grace of God has appeared in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. God supplies grace that empowers our formation into Christ-likeness. How many of you like training? You can raise your hands if you, you know, it's okay. We got one, okay. All right. Most of us don't, but we are about to be inundated because it's that time of the year, especially like after Christmas and right before New Year's when people are making those resolutions, all the exercise equipment things, you know. Right now we're bombarded with men with uh, how we don't really love our wives unless we buy them jewelry, in particular diamonds. But the ads are going to turn, you know, and they're going to start, you know, guilting us about uh, we're out of shape, right? And we we need training. But you may be thinking, how can I live a godly life? Well, God has sent His grace in the form of Jesus Christ, who is supplying grace for us that's going to train us to do Two things, to renounce and to put on, to put off and to put on. We're going to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and we're going to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. And so Christ supplies grace for our current purpose, living godly lives. First, we see ungodliness and worldly passions are to be renounced. 
Ungodliness can be summarized as a lack of reverence for God. In other words, living our lives without considering God or his thoughts or his actions. Waking up in the morning and not giving a second thought as to whether God cares about what you do for the day. Living our lives without considering God. Prayerlessness and ungratefulness are two big signs of ungodliness. They're not the only ones, but they're two big indicators. Prayerlessness and ungodliness. So that's, or excuse me, prayerlessness and ungratefulness are signs of ungodliness. But what about worldliness? What is worldliness? First John 2.16 gives us a good definition of worldliness. It says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Worldliness can be found in our desire for three things. And I've alliterated them here to help you with your memorizing them. Uh, the lust of the flesh would be pleasure. Uh, then the des- uh, desires of the eyes is going to be possessions, things that we want to have. So the pleasures, possessions, and then the pride of life, the pride of life. And how could we summarize the pride of life? I'll give you three more peas that you can take home and you can have a full a spoonful of peas to remember these things. But pride can be taken in power, popularity, and prominence. Power, popularity, and prominence. Those are three big things that we des- we are prideful of, that we want uh, for in our lives. So there's pleasure, possessions, and pride. And then pride can be taken in our power, in our popularity, and our prominence. So Christ appeared for Christians in order to train us to renounce irreverent lives focused on our desires. We're to renounce irreverent lives focused on ourselves and our desires. And then, after we renounce those things, he's training us to live a certain way. And it's this sanctification. It's growing in Christ's likeness. It's often presented in the Scriptures in the form of what I call the replacement principle. I'm to put off something and then I'm to replace it with something else. Put off and put on. Stop this behavior and start this behavior. Kill this desire and focus on Christ. And we see that in our passage today, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. That word self-controlled, it's being in control of your desires, of your passions and desires, being in control. Of your passions and desires. And then the word upright means to behave yourself honestly without injuring someone. And then godly lives. That's a life lived in reverence of God. Being mindful of God and what he thinks of what you do and what you say and what you think. Note the contrast. We are to be self-controlled instead of worldly passions. Self-controlled instead of worldly passions. And then we are to be upright in our behavior towards others with a godly reverence towards God. Upright in our behavior towards others and a godly reverence towards God. Now, why are we to, why, when, when we live selfishly, we don't care what other people 
think about us unless we just want them to like us, right? But we have to be considerate of God and others. I mean, that summarized the two great commandments, right? To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So, Christ supplies grace to fulfill our purpose. And it's our purpose in this present age. You see, our salvation is not simply a get-out-of-hell-free card. Christ saves us for a purpose. He wants us to serve Him in this present age. We're not supposed to just twiddle our thumbs waiting to die or waiting for Him to return. He wants us to serve Him by living godly lives full of good works. We are supplied this grace to live a self-controlled life that is mindful of God and others. And this life can be tough. Those who live for Christ will suffer persecution. Our Lord said so. We are to represent Christ's rule in this world until He returns and establishes His kingdom. We are reminded by sickness, trials, and injustice in this present age that this world is not the ultimate kingdom. Christ not only supplies grace to fulfill our purpose in this present age, but he also supplies hope for our future. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hope in the Bible is not a wish. As in, boy, I wish this. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation in something that is certain. It's not wishful, it's certain. Hope in the Bible is like the end of my sermon. You know it's coming, you just don't know when, right? That's that's the same way with Christ. We don't know when Christ is returning, but boy, won't it be great when he does. What a day that will be. What a day. Jim Hill wrote a hymn in 1965. I want to read it to you. This is, again, one of those times where I'd love to be able to sing and sing it to you, but I'm going to stay in my lane, as they say. But he writes, There is coming a day when no heartache shall come, no more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. Verse 2 says, there'll be no sorrow there, no more burdens to bear, no more sickness, no more pain, no more parting over there. And forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. And then the chorus says, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see, when I look upon his face. The one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day. Glorious day. That will be. Oh, beloved, we have a hope. We have a confident expectation of a wonderful kingdom when Christ returns and brings us to himself. And there are joys in this life. Blessings from God that we can enjoy to the fullest. But what we have to be careful of is allowing worldly pleasures to replace our hope in the return of Christ. I mean, this world sometimes can be pretty good, but it's not going to be that good. Life can be tough. And the 
final verse of Revelation. It says, He who testifies to these things, that be Christ, says, Surely I am coming soon. And the Apostle John writes, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. You may be facing some difficulties right now. But one day, for the Christian, it's going to get real good. We have hope. Christ supplies hope for our future as we live for His purpose now. And then next, Paul reflects on how Christ supplied Himself for our salvation. And in this past work of Christ on our behalf, we see Christ's purpose in redeeming us. Look at Titus 2.14. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. There's three things I want to zone in on here in this passage. First is substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. Atonement is a word that was actually made up when they were translating the Scriptures. It means at-one-ment. In other words, we've been brought at one with God. Atoned. We were separated from God by our sins. And Christ provided a sacrifice that brought us at one with God. The sacrifice that atones for us. It says He gave Himself for us. In other words, Christ took upon Himself my sin, the judgment for my sin, so that His death is the death that pays for what should have been paid for by me. And He lived the perfect life because I couldn't. And so, when I place my faith in Him, His death pays for my sins and His righteousness becomes mine. And it's the only hope that I have of salvation because when I'm given His righteousness, I'm given God's righteousness. And I can be in the presence of God. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I urge you today to repent of your sins and place your faith in the One who died for your sins and lived a perfect life that you could not live. Make Him the Lord of your life. Stop following your own desires and doing things your way and submit to His rule and reign over your life. He'll save you. He'll save you. Substitutionary atonement. He gave Himself for us. But He did that for a purpose. To redeem us from all lawlessness. This word lawlessness means lawless deeds. In other words, our rebellion against God. Our salvation is free, but it cost our dear Savior a cross death. And we are to renounce those things. We are to renounce our rebellion against God in our lawless deeds, but then we have kind of this long phrase, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. To purify. That's why we are to continue to be renouncing ungodliness and worldly desires. To be purified by the blood of Christ and brought into His presence. We are brought in to be a people for His own possession. We become His people. See, everybody in the world is either a child of the serpent or a child of the seed of the woman. Starts in Genesis. Works its way out at the end. But you are either in rebellion against God, just like Satan, or you are adopted into God's family. You become one of Christ's people. 
whom he brings into his own possession for himself. I mean, Christ's inheritance is us. He gets us. Now, I kind of look at that and go, boy, (laughs) that's kind of a crummy deal, Jesus. (laughs) You know, I'm not that great. But man, we are precious in his eyes. He loved us enough to leave heaven's glories and die on a cross for us. So that we can be His. A people for His own possession. It even refers back into Psalm chapter 2 when God is speaking to the righteous one and He says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for an inheritance. We are Jesus' inheritance. He's, He's purifying for Himself a people for His own possession. But who are these people are to be characterized by something. A zeal... For good works. If you are a Christian, then Christ redeemed you to purify for Himself a person to be His. And you are to be zealous with for good works. Now, what hinders us from doing good works to others? First of all, our selfish desires. Already mentioned. I'd rather spend my time and my money on myself. What else? I put it this way, in a word, judgmentalism. I don't think somebody else deserves my help for whatever reason. I think they're either different than me or they need to work harder or they need to do this or what, what, or I just don't like them. And I'm judging them. My selfish desires and judgmentalism, two big hindrances from doing good works for others. But Christ, as Christ blessed people in his ministry, We are to bless people we encounter in our lives. And this is something that we ought to be zealous to do. In other words, God wants to bless people through you, Christian. We should be zealous to do that. What did you, what do you have to give that wasn't given to you by God? Anybody? Nothing. I heard the right answer. Good. Nothing. You don't have anything. You were freely given. Freely give. Freely give. Bless people. We ought to be eager to do it. Zealous to do it. And man, you know, it pricks at my heart. Because I know me. I tend to be pretty selfish. Christ supplied Himself for our salvation. We didn't deserve that. So that we would be His people who are eager to bless others by our good works. And good works is all through the book of Titus. You can take that and read it. I've double underlined it, I think, on your handout. You can look and see how many times good works is listed there. Christ supplied himself for our salvation. What a gracious, good God we serve. But then notice in verse 15, declare these things, he says to Titus, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Here we see that Christ's purpose for His people must be heeded. And so I I urge you this morning, as your pastor, if God has pricked your heart about being more zealous for good works, don't ignore Him today. Don't walk out of here and become callous. Don't Don't disregard the message this morning. We want you... Beloved, 
and ourselves as an example of good works, as he said in the first ten verses of chapter two, as your pastors, to be examples of good works, to be full of good works. So declare these things, this truth about God's word. Our church attempts to fulfill this verse's requirements by expository preaching. Now, you say, what's expository preaching? Well, it's, it's taking what it, God said to them then and saying that same thing to you now, helping you understand it now. Expository preaching. It's taking the idea of the text from the text itself, not imposing our ideas upon this text. So we try to do that through expository preaching. We also try to do it through meaningful church membership and church discipline. I've said before, I won't belabor this point this morning for sake of time, but as a church, we are to give the gospel, we are to guard the gospel, and we're to grow Christians. Give the gospel, guard the gospel, and grow Christians. All found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Pastors must teach their people in word and by example to live godly lives because that is Christ's purpose for them. So beware of any pastor that teaches by word or example lifestyles that God prohibits and tries to teach them as something that's acceptable to God. So, beloved, this morning I want you to understand Christ's purpose for you should be your purpose for life. Christ's purpose for you should be your purpose for life. You need to live a godly life that reflects well on sound doctrine. And Christ supplies all you need to live a godly life full of good works because that's his purpose for his redeemed people. He's going to help you. He supplied himself for your salvation from a life of ungodly deeds so that you can live a life of good works as one of his people. You're not saved by your good works, but you're saved for good works. We'll see that in chapter 3 of Titus. So I won't belabor that point now. But he supplied himself for your salvation from a life of ungodly deeds. He supplies grace for you to live a self-controlled life that is mindful of God and others currently. He supplies hope for your future. This world's not the ultimate, so live for God now. It can be hard, but it's not the ultimate. We're The ultimate's coming. And we have hope in that because of Christ. Pray that God will open your eyes to opportunities to bless others. Pray that God will give you boldness to bless others, even if it is costly to you. Pray that God will give you boldness to bless others, even if you don't think they deserve it. Christ supplies all you need, beloved, to live a godly life full of good works because that's Christ's purpose for his redeemed 